0: We're pleased. We had a great weekend with the Navigator Conference featuring Jerry Bridges, better known to us as the, Navi- as the Jerry Bridges Conference. But uh, Jerry's been here this uh, Friday, Saturday morning uh, there with, through the Navs. Many of us were there. Great time of thinking through the scripture, especially in the context of the joy of fearing God. And, and uh, Jerry, has, uh, each year as he does this, uh, stays over and preaches on Sunday morning, which is to our great blessing um, and benefit, he's influenced our congregation over these many, many years through his books, uh, through his preaching. And uh, frankly, he preaches a little bit every Sunday uh, through me as I uh, take that which he has taught me and all of us and uh, continue to share it over and over again. Someone once asked me why I don't write books. And I said, well, Jerry did. And so I... I, I if I wrote something, I'd get sued by his publisher for stealing it this way. Nobody notices so much. So I'm happy about that. Jerry, if you'll please come. And as he comes, uh, I will pray for him and for us. Hmm. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for our dear friend. And we're grateful how you've gifted him and uh, called him. And brought him uh, to us on this morning. Bless him, strengthen him, encourage him as he speaks. And most especially we pray that your word would go forth in such a way that would transform lives. That we would not only understand, uh, but believe and live. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3? While you're turning, let me just say that it is a delight to be here for the 15th year in a row. But actually, my time with Grace EPC goes back to 1995 when I first came here to do a men's retreat. And uh, some of you... Probably not many of you, but some of you were meeting in a schoolhouse at the time. And so that was my first introduction to Grace CPC and to Bill. And it's been just a mutual admiration society ever since. And Jane and I always just look forward to coming here. This is, you know, in all of the activity of a given year, this is one of our highlights. And so we appreciate the opportunity of being here with you. Let's turn our attention to Colossians chapter 3, reading the first 14 verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away and in all put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassion kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you almost so you also must forgive <clears throat> and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'm getting along in the years where I realized that uh, some of the things that were expressions that were common to me in my childhood and early adulthood no longer register with some of the people anymore. And here's one that I do not know, if you younger folks have heard, but uh, it was very common when I was growing up and as a young man. And the expression was, he is so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. Or we say, she is so heavenly-minded, she's no earthly good. Now, I don't know what that kind of heavenly-mindedness looks like, but Paul here says that the way to be earthly good or to be of good value in society is to be heavenly-minded. And so we want to look at this section of Colossians to see what Paul's meaning of being heavenly minded looks like and so we see in the first four verses there's the challenge to this and then in verses uh, 5 through 11 there is an application by way of putting away the things of our old life and then finally in verses 12 to 14 those character traits we should put on in our lives so Let's look, first of all, at the challenges, or the challenge in the first four verses. Paul says, seek, and the idea here in in the Greek is seek continually, or seek constantly. So, it's something that we keep on doing day after day after day. We are to make this a practice of our lives, to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then again, constantly or consistently set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The idea of seeking here, I think of the passage in Proverbs chapter 2, where the writer of Proverbs, presumably Solomon, is talking about wisdom and understanding. And he says, you are to seek this wisdom and understanding as for hidden treasures You were to search for it as searching for silver. And so the idea of seeking is a rather intense idea. It means that we deliberately set our hearts to it. It's not an afterthought. It's not an add-on to the Christian life. But this is to be something that is very central to the life of a Christian, to see constantly the things that are above. Then the idea of setting your mind is, once you saw and you found this, then you set your mind on that you, uh, the setting your mind has the idea of fixation and so you seek out the buried treasure and then once you found it, you set yourself to recovering it and so what Paul is saying here he says we should seek out those things above and then once we find them, we should set our minds on them constantly to be thinking about them Now, this, of course, raises the question, what are the things above that we are to seek and to set our minds on? And the first thing that comes to mind is God's glory. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 5, the very first petition is, Hallowed be your name, which is the way of saying, God, may you be glorified, will you glorify yourself? And so if I'm to set my mind on the things above, that means in practice that I'm to set my mind on things in this life that will glorify God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. We know that eating and drinking is very routine. It's something we most of us at least do three times a day. And we hardly give it any thought unless you're real hungry. But you know, we just we take that for granted that we're gonna have breakfast and lunch and dinner. And that's very it's a very mundane activity. It's a very regular activity. And Paul says, Whatever you do, even if it's just the mundane regular thing of eating and drinking three times a day, do this to the glory of God. In fact he says Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In other words, this whatever you do encompasses all of life. It encompasses our work, it encompasses our recreation, it encompasses our spiritual life. All of these things, Paul says, it's all to be done with a view to God's glory. That's what it means to set our minds on things above. Another idea that that would be included in that is that we seek to do the will of God. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, oftentimes we do our own will, do we not? And that may or may not be in accordance with the will of God. But Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And in another passage, he said, "I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me." Now I realize that these absolute terms out of the mouth of Jesus sort of scare us. You know, we think, "Am I supposed to live like that?" You know, always seeking to do the will of God, always seeking to do that which glorifies God. And the answer is yes. That's what it means to seek that which is above. That's what it means to set our mind on things that are above. Biblical Christianity, I mean the Christianity that's taught to us in the Scriptures and specifically in this passage that we're looking at this morning, is not an add-on to one's ordinary life. Let me illustrate what I mean by add-on. When I was in high school, I started Actually, when I was in school, junior high, as we called it then, was 7th, 8th, and ninth grades, and then high school was 10, 11, and 12. And I started playing football on the junior high team in the ninth grade, and I continued throughout my high school years, so four years of football. I was never very good. I never got a lot of playing time, even in my senior year. I was small. And it's okay to be small if you're quick or fast, but I was neither. And so, you know, I didn't get a lot of playing time. I I stuck it out. But as I look back on my attitude, my mindset at that time, I realized football was an add-on. I was a good student. I graduated in the top 10% of my class. I was a member of the National Honor Society. Uh, I always did my assignments. Uh, In fact, it never occurred to me not to do an assignment. It just was not even on my radar screen. And I I tell you that to say that my main purpose for being in school was an academic purpose. I wanted to learn because I knew that learning was the path to a successful vocation. And so you might say football was an add-on. Now, fast forward to today, in the high-profile athletic teams, and especially in Division One, like Kansas is, and um, uh, football. I mean, those who are in the football team, or the basketball team, or baseball, or whatever it might be, that's their life, and academics is kind of an add-on. And so, what I'm talking about is, where is your focus? Is, your, is Christianity, for you, living out the Christian life, is it an add-on to what you do in your ordinary life? Or does your Christian, Christianity define your ordinary life? All of us live in two spheres. We live in the temporal sphere, which is from birth to death. That is, this life, all of the things that occur in this life, all of the tangible, the things that we can see and know and do, and these things, that's the temporal life. But if we're born again, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we also live in a spiritual realm. And the thing we have to ask is this Is the spiritual realm an add on to the temporal? Or does the spiritual realm define how we live in the temple, in the the, uh, temporary life? This is what Paul is getting at when he says that uh, we're to set our minds on the things that are above. And the reason he gives is in verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is fond of using the the word die or similar words. He says, for example, I was crucified with Christ. And when he says you have died, he, he is saying to us that through our identity with Christ, our being united to Christ, Christ was our representative so that what he did, we effectively did. When Christ lived a sinless, perfectly righteous life, He did that as our representative so effectively before God we stand before Him as having lived a sinless life. Now, that's an incredible statement but that's our position in Christ. Not because we've been good but because Christ was good in our place if you please. In the same way, when Christ died He died as our representative and so we died with Him. That's why Paul would say I was crucified With Christ. And the idea here of dying is that we have died to the old order. We have died to the old way of life. We were under the domain of Satan. We were under the dominion of sin. And through our identification with Christ in his death, we died to all of that. Now we still sin. Satan and sin will seek to usurp the ruling power in our lives. But in God's sight and in actuality, we have died to that old order. And Paul says in Romans 6, verse 11, you must consider yourself dead. Stop and think about it. And uh, this is one of the ways we can uh, effectively encounter temptation. We look at that temptation and we say, that's part of my whole life. I'm dead to that. I no longer live in there. And so I must, take, I must take steps to make sure that I do not fall back into the life that I was in outside of Christ. And so we see that this is a tremendous challenge to live all of life to the glory of God, to live all of life under the will of God, to seek to make God's priorities, our priorities in our lives. Now many people would think, well, that's okay for the monks of the medieval days and that's okay for you guys who are pastors and missionaries and navigator staff, but I've got work to do. I mean you guys get paid to spend studying the Bible and I get paid for doing computer programs or teaching a first grade class or something like that. And surely, you don't mean that that I'm to live my life this way. That's for you guys. Well, let's look at verse 22, starting at 22 to 24. Paul addresses a group of people he calls slaves. Now, we should understand that slaves in the Roman Empire era were in a somewhat different category from slaves in our awful history here in the United States. Slavery here was a very demeaning thing. In that day, it was not necessarily so. A slave could have been, the, uh, in contemporary terms, the chief financial officer for his master. In other words, he could have been a steward of the master's estate. And there were all kinds of jobs, from the very top job like that to a very menial job. But one thing they all had in common, they were owned by their masters. Regardless of the responsibility that they carried during the day, they were slaves. They were owned by their masters. And so the Apostle Paul is addressing these. He's addressing everybody. uh, But I think what what I want us to see, not I think, what I want us to see is if he addresses slaves, how much more does he address school teachers and computer programmers and doctors and lawyers and firemen and whatever? Paul is not talking about a spiritual elite. He's talking about what you might call ordinary Christians. And this is what he says Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Notice here that he uses the word Lord four times in this brief statement, and basically he's saying, in your temporal life, fulfilling your your duties as a slave. Let the way you fulfill those duties be defined by the fact that you live in the spiritual realm. You are serving Jesus Christ. You go into your first grade classroom and you face all of these runny-nosed kids. And Paul is saying, you should think of yourself as serving Christ. Now you're teaching. Our fireman being a first responder And you do that as to the Lord. You do that as serving the Lord. In other words, all of our temporal life is to be defined by the fact that we're doing this as unto Him. We're seeking to glorify Him, to do His will. And to glorify Him means that God will be displayed in all of His splendor and glory to the people around us. And so we live in these two realms. And so Paul is saying, let your temporal realm be defined by the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is not to be an add-on. It's to be the focal point of your life. That's what it means to seek those things that are above and to set your mind on things that are above. And so then Paul gives us some very practical applications that are applicable to all of us, whether we are slaves or slave masters or whatever. In verses 5 through 11, he tells us what we are to put off or to put to death. He says in verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And then he gives us a list here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul says that your life is not to be defined by indulgence in these things. That's part of the old life. That's part of what you died to when you died with Christ. And so you take practical steps to respond to the fact that in Christ I have died to this, so I want to no longer live in it. I no no longer want to participate in it. And so Paul says put them off now we look at this uh, list here in verses 5 and 6 and we might say Shh, boy you know that doesn't apply to me I mean you can check, check the box on that one that's all taken care of I don't have to bother about that because I'm not into sexual immorality and evil desires and, and these kinds of things and so we can just say well Uh, I'm okay. And the reason we do this is because we have defined sin in terms of what people out in the broader culture engage in, such as sexual immorality and drug dealing and, and, um, you know, the white-collar crime and all of these kinds of things. And we read about it in the paper, and we don't do those things. And so, uh, we think we're off the hook, so to speak, as far as uh, obeying what Paul is telling us here. But go to verse 8. He says, "But Now you must put them all away. Well, okay, I've put away sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires. I've, just, I've done that, Paul. But verse 8, is, it's an interesting grammatical structure here. Because, but it's a transition verse. in he, When he says, you must put them all away, he's referring both to what he has just said about the gross sins <clears throat> and, what, <clears throat> and what he is about to say about the sins that you and I are guilty of. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Pardon me just a moment. I've been a Christian for many years. I've been on Navigator staff for over 50 years. I grew up in church and all of these things. And my observation of the broader Christian community is that we have defined sin in terms of those grosser sins that Paul talks about in verses 5 and 6. But Paul also, and he he gets to that. I mean, those are serious sins. They're not to be taken lightly. But what about the anger and the wrath and the malice and the slander? And we find that we are guilty of that. Now, in Ephesians, which is a a letter that was written about the same time as Colossians, and there's quite a bit of overlap, at least in the main thoughts. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, Paul says, Put off, therefore, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is created to be like God. And so what we have here is what uh, many of us call the put-off and put-on principle. That is, that we are to give equal attention to putting off the sinful uh, traits and put on the God-honoring traits, the fruit of the Spirit, if you please. And we're going to get to that in verses 12 to 14. But what I want to say from Ephesians chapter 4 after telling us to put off and put on, the beginning in Ephesians 4.25 through 5.4, he gives us examples of what he means by putting off and putting on. And all of those examples can be put under three headings. The first heading is that of integrity. He speaks, he talks about not lying and not stealing. The second uh, um, section could be put under sexual morality, that is, not engaging in sexual impurity. And that's in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. In between, he has a third section, which is kind of mixed in along with the integrity and the sexual purity. And I call it interpersonal relationships. Just getting along with one another. How we treat one another. Now, I counted one day, out of this Bible here, I didn't count the verses, but I counted the actual lines of print, because, as you know, verses vary in degree of length. And when I counted the lines of print, and we're talking about the Ephesians, four passages now, when I counted the lines of print, seven were devoted to integrity. Five were devoted to sexual morality. Sixteen were devoted to interpersonal relationships. Now, in making those comparisons, I'm not meaning to diminish the importance of integrity and sexual purity, one I owe But what I am trying to say is that not only Paul, but the Bible gives a lot more attention to how we treat one another, how we get along with one another, and it does all of these sins that are committed out in, uh, in the broader culture. And we don't commit those sins out in the broader culture, but we ignore the sins of interpersonal relationships. We ignore how we treat what the Bible says about how we should treat one another. Because after all, those are not the big sins. But the Apostle Paul says must put away not only the big sins, but also the little sins. This takes us to uh, the third section of the text today, and that is put on. We've talked about the put off, now let's talk about the put on. So beginning with verse 12, let me read that to you again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. (coughs) And if one has a complaint against another, (coughs) forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Excuse me once again. Try to get this thing out of my throat. Okay, I I think I've got it now. Let's continue. Before we get into what he wants us to put on, I want to call your attention to how he describes us. He reminds us that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Three different expressions. Chosen. And Paul in Ephesians 1.4 says they were chosen from before the foundation of the world. Now, this idea of chosen or being elected is not a subject to be debated, but it's a subject to rejoice in. The fact that God, before the foundation of the world, chose me to be in Christ. And at a particular point in my own life as a teenager, God activated that choice, and I trusted Christ as my Savior. And so Paul says, remember that you're chosen by God. God from eternity chose you to be one of his children, and you should rejoice in it. Then the next word that he uses is the word holy. Now, Paul here is not speaking of our character and conduct, though that word is used in other instances to mean our character and our conduct. But here Paul is talking about the basic meaning of the word holy which means one who is set apart. We have the word sanctify. And the word, and the word sanctify and the word holy all come from, both come from the same Greek word, and they basically mean to set apart. The, the um, utensils in the, um, in the temple, in the tabernacle, were set apart. They were holy. They were not to be used for ordinary use. And so you and I have been set apart to God and to Christ. Paul uses the term uh, to be his own possession. That is, we are Christ's own possession. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. We are effectively slaves, as those Roman slaves were. We are slaves to Christ Jesus because... He not only chose us and set us apart and rescued us out of the domain of darkness, but in doing so, He set us apart to be His own possession. And so Paul is saying, remember who you are. You were chosen from the foundation of the world. And God set you apart to be His own possession. The third word he uses is the word beloved. Now, in my growing up years, it was very com- common for the pastor to address the congregation. He'd say, dearly beloved, and then whatever he wanted to say. And so to me, that was, beloved was no more than just a form of address, like Mr. or Mrs. or Dr. or something like that. But it's not just a form of address. It's a description of what is true about us, and that is that we are dearly loved by God. Now, some people have trouble thinking that they're dearly loved by God because they look at themselves and they say, how could God love a person like me? And the answer is, God's love is self-generated. God's love is not a response to something outside of ourselves like our love. We might, you know, a guy might see a beautiful girl and he say, boy, you know, I would to love her there's something about her that's attractive, or these kinds of things. When God looked at us, he did not see anything that was attractive, either physically or characterized or anything. He chose us out of his own self-generated love. And so now he says to us, you are dearly loved. You have problems, you're still struggling with sinful traits in your life, But notwithstanding that, you are dearly loved by me because my love, God says, is self-generated. It's not contingent. It's not dependent upon what I see about you that would cause me to want to love you, but I love you because I decided to love you. And so Paul says, remember who you are. And then in the light of that, he gives us these Uh, character traits that we are to put on. Now, uh, I have a whole message on these character traits which I'm going to summarize in five minutes here. But let me just quickly give you an idea of what these mean. The first word is the word compassion. And it means to have pity on somebody but not just to feel sorry for them. It means to do something about it. Jesus in Matthew 9 had compassion upon the crowds because they were harassed and helpless. And so he said to his disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will raise up laborers for the harvest. Let's do something about these people that are harassed and helpless. Or well, we find the word used with the, in the story of the, the parable of the good Samaritan who found the man who had been robbed and beaten, lying alongside the road. And the text says he had compassion on him, and so what did he do? He treated his wounds and bound them up, and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn down the road. His his compassion was active; it caused him to do something. And so Paul says, put on this feeling of pity—not just feeling sorry for people, but this that will cause you to do something to alleviate that suffering that's compassion the word kindness is a kind of a broad term and I think it basically refers to how we treat one another in general I think the best way to understand kindness is to use the word unkind so oftentimes we use unkind words do we not in speaking to one another Or probably more often speaking about another. Several years ago, I was at a banquet, with a Christian banquet, and I won't describe it any closer than that. But I happened to be sitting at the table, the same table with a Christian leader. And in the course just of our table conversation, he said something very unkind. Just, just a remark. Just no more than probably 10 words in the sentence. But it's very unkind about another Christian leader. And the irony is, those two men had worked together. But he said something unkind about him. And I was aghast, and I thought, how can he do that? How can he say something unkind like that? Just kind of a little thing. Wasn't gossip or anything like that. Just basically, he was questioning the guy's theology. Unkind words. And I dare say that those words rolled off of that Christian leader's tongue without his even giving it a thought. I doubt very seriously if he had any conviction of that afterward and thought to himself, well, I wish I hadn't have said that. Because we're so accustomed accustomed to this kind of thing, of making unkind remarks to and about other people. And so Paul says, one of the character traits that we're to put on is kindness. How we treat one another. Humility comes first of all from realizing how sinful we still are. I sometimes say to the Lord, Lord, I'm 83 years old, and I'm still struggling with this or that or the other. And that's humbling to realize that. So humility begins with realizing that we are still practicing sinners, that we still say unkind words and things like this. Meekness is kind of the opposite end of kindness. When somebody is unkind to us or someone mistreats us, Meekness describes how, as a Christian, we should respond to that by not retaliating, not getting angry uh, in return, not even feeling hurt, but letting us, so to speak, roll off of our shoulders. One of the writers that I enjoy the most, uh, um, John Blanchard, is an English Bible teacher, and he said, uh, It's just as big a sin to be offended as it is to offend. So meekness means that we are not offended when we are mistreated. Now, we should not mistreat one another. We should not say unkind words. But those happen. Most of us, at some time or other, we say something that, you know, if we stopped and thought about it, we would regret having said it. But when somebody says that to us or about us, to not harbor it, not be hurt by it, to use that word. And then patience. Patience has two meanings here. First of all, it's putting up graciously with the faults of other people. Not their deliberate sins, but just, you know, their mannerisms or their faults or these kinds of things but it's putting up graciously with that. Forgiveness, on the other hand, is how we're to respond to actual hurts against us when somebody has wronged us, when somebody has gossiped about us, or somebody has effectively stolen from us in a business transaction or something like that. And the best comment on forgiveness is found our commentary on forgiveness is found in Matthew 18 in that well-known parable of the unjust servant the man who owed his master 10,000 talents which in today's coalition, our money today would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight billion dollars not million, but billion dollars and then you remember how having been forgiven by the master, he goes out and he's hardly out the door, than he sees a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii, which again, transcribe, or transcribe that today, would be about $15,000. Now, $15,000 is not exactly coffee break money, but compared to a billion dollars, it is. It's, it's insignificant. And yet he doesn't forgive. And so you can read the story, and it's very instructive. And let me just say this. If there's somebody that you are having difficulty forgiving, if there's somebody that you say, I just cannot forgive that person, you really need to read and reflect on and pray over the parable of the unjust servant in Matthew 18. And if you can read that and then continue to, to be unforgiving... I don't understand how you can think such a thing. It's one of the most potent passages of Scripture in the Bible. And it's on the subject of forgiveness. Forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven us. Forgiving, you know, our, our debt. I mean, the, the unspoken message of the parable is that we are the 6 to $8 billion debtor. That's our debt to God because of our sin. And regardless of what the other person has done to us, by comparison, it's about $15,000. And so Paul says, forgiving one another, um, even as God has forgiven us. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost for- forgive. Love. You can read about that in First Corinthians 13, where Paul says love is patient, kind, and so forth. It, it tells us what love looks like in action. So in conclusion, heavenly-mindedness is not a, an escape hatch from the responsibilities and cares of this world, but rather heavenly-mindedness rightly understood is a rock solid platform on which we should build a life that responds biblically to the responsibilities and cares of this temple life. Being heavenly minded, letting our lives be defined by that spiritual realm, setting our minds on things above, will give us the foundation, the rock solid foundation as to how we are to live in the temporal life that all of us live every day. May God help us to be, be all of us, to be heavenly-minded, not so that we're no earthly good, but so that we will indeed be good to glorify God and to help other people. So we pray. Our Father, we just come to you today. We acknowledge that uh, this passage is so challenging to us. It seems so far beyond our reach. And Father, we thank you that you've given to us not only your word to instruct us, but your spirit to empower us. And we pray that as we've been instructed today by your scripture, that your spirit would come alongside of us and dwell within us as he actually does, and empower each of us, motivate us to want to be the kind of person that Paul is describing in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.